Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to another edition of the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. I know in real time it's only been two weeks since the last time we were here, uh, but in recording time, it feels like it's been a while. I, I want to say it's been three or four weeks at this point uh, since Chase and I have sat down to talk about a movie, uh, but we have now watched a movie that came out last year because, listen, we were going to watch the Nicolas Cage movie and then when I came back from vacation, I didn't realize it was out of theaters. So I promise you, as penance, when it comes out on streaming, we will watch the Nicolas Cage movie, we will talk about it, and honestly, we might just talk about, like, Nicolas Cage's entire career because I think that his career is really underrated, and we need to talk about why Con Air is the greatest Nicolas Cage movie of all time. Man, uh, that's a weird but- way to pronounce Drive Angry. Weird. I uh, I never heard it pronounced that way before. Uh, Oh, man. As I say we, I, of course, mean my wonderful co-host, Chase Redshirt King Wassener. Chase, how are you doing on this lovely evening as we were recording? I'm doing pretty well. I, you know, we, we looked at our list. We thought to ourselves, which of the films that we didn't get to last year uh, that we wanted to talk about would be a good fit. Um, when and got that uh, free trial Hulu subscription just for this film, and I, I I sure have strong feelings about it. Which ultimately, I think the purpose of cinema is to uh, move you towards strong emotions and to feel like you've uh, gotten something, perhaps been changed by the experience. And I'll give the Green Knight that. I will give it that I have many strong feelings, uh, and I'm excited to talk about it today, because woo lads, is there a lot to talk about with this film? I like that you use the term cinema and film, and not movie, not just kind of like the, the more the more American term, mm-hmm. movie, the, because this does feel like cinema it does feel as if there is an artistry to it. And I won't call it Oscar bait because I don't think that this movie was Oscar bait. I don't view it in the same way I view something like The Revenant or No Country for Old Men or The Power of the Dog or any of those types of movies. I feel like this was a movie, uh, a film, that the, the director, the producer, the writers, the actors, they all came together and they wanted to give us something very, in, very something particular, very you know something that they all had this artistic vision for and crafted, and really wanted to show us something different than we are, what we normally expect when we go to a movie theater or we we boot up Hulu or Netflix or something like that. Uh, Chase. As we start all of the Final Cut podcasts, let us start at the beginning. What were your initial thoughts going into watching this, your initial impressions? What did you know about uh, the plot and the story or even the actors, director, anything like that uh, as we sat down to watch The Green Knight? So there are three things I knew going into this film. The first is the story that this is based on. Sir Gowan and The Green Knight is a uh, story that I have read multiple times. I read it in high school. 
in more kind of modern English, and I read it when I was at university in its middle English. So I am very familiar with this story, and honestly, great story to adapt. There are a lot of really fun moments, a lot of interesting characters. Um, I, I think it is a... Uh, th there's a lot that you can do with it that is interesting conceptually. Uh, the second thing I knew is that it is a very divisive film. It got a lot of praise from uh, critics as 89% on the tomato meter, uh, but it also a lot of uh, strong mixed feelings from the audience um, got a 50% on the audience score. And, I, and of course there are a lot of reasons and you know, I don't want to pretend that uh, audience scores on, on something like a Rotten Tomato should be an end all be all, but there were certainly, there seemed to be a harsh divide in how critics saw this film and how the average person maybe uh, came away from this film. And the third thing I knew is that this was a David Lowry film. And David Lowry is a director that my roommate, who is very much a nerd uh, when it comes to these kind of film things, has actively not had me watch. Because he's like, this is a guy whose style is going to frustrate you. Um, and it turns out he was right. I have, I, uh, I, I just, I'll, I'll let you know at the top, did not care for this film. Uh, really, really frustrated me uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and some of that, you know, I, I recognize that I'm going to come off as one of those, oh, I liked the original better. You know, the book is better than the movie. Like, I, I get it. I understand why those people are annoying. I understand that criticism can be can be brought here. But man, if ever there was a a, a time in which I really would have loved a genuine adaptation instead of the cynical, um, just unpleasant uh, version of the story that we got in a lot of different ways. Uh, it would have been nice. It would have been nice. Uh, maybe I'm just spoiled by everything everywhere all at once that I believe that you can acknowledge the realities of a thing and still find some modicum of hope from it. And in Arthurian legend, that was kind of a, a whole big thing. But hey, uh, yeah, just a really, <laughs> really frustrating film. That's, that's interesting for me to hear. Um, not because I necessarily disagree with you, because, spoiler alert, prior to us recording, I mentioned to Chase that in order to even discuss this film, I felt like I needed to have a master's in English language, or, mm -hmm. you know, in, in English literature or anything, and, and Chase kind of chuckled and, and sort of agreed with it. Um, I had very little knowledge uh, of Sir Gawain, and even Arthurian legend, my, my Arthur legend is basically whatever, you know, modern movies are, the, the live-action King Arthur or whatever, and then the animated The Sword and the Stone, and the underappreciated Quest for Camelot. Uh, terrible movie, but I think also slightly underappreciated. So I knew basically nothing about this going into it. In fact, I, after the movie, I was like, okay, I gotta do some research, because clearly this is piggybacking off of, off of Camelot and piggybacking off of Arthurian legend, and I recognized Gawain's name, but I was like, what's the story behind it? And then, you know, a quick 
Google search was like, oh yeah, there's there's this entire 14th century poem discussing this very story. And no offense, Chase, English professors anywhere, uh, I did not go to read that poem for this podcast uh, because no, I'm just not going to. <laughs> I'm going to just deal with the material that is in front of me. Um, but I understand the frustration because I I didn't come out of this movie entertained. I came out of this movie questioning and thinking and trying to wrap my head around what the movie was trying to tell me, what the movie wanted to discuss, what the lesson, what the story, what the director, the writer and the actors wanted me to feel afterwards. And I have to say, if they were going for wondering confusion and deciding if I needed to write a thesis about Arthurian legend, they totally nailed it on that front. But if they wanted to tell me the story of Sir Gawain and have me create an attachment to the character or to the legend itself, it definitely fell flat because I had way more questions at the end of it uh, than I did at the beginning. Um, well, so, so you Chase, know what else doesn't have a strong connection to the original story and what it's trying to do would be the script for The Green Knight. So you're in good company there with the writers of this film, I suppose. Well, that, that's, that's perfect, because that's actually where I want to go to, and then we'll talk about some, some nicer things that we might have to say uh, about the movie, about the film, uh, you know, the cinematography, all that jazz. Where do you find that the the script, the writings uh, that uh, um, that David Lowry puts in front of us? Where do you find that they they differ or separate themselves from the original uh, original story? Yeah, so let's start at the very beginning. Uh, Sir Gowan, not at all the personality that Dave Patel portrays in this film. Uh, Sir Gowan is a younger knight. Uh, by the time he uh, is in this story in the original poem, he is already a knight who has earned his spot in King Arthur's court. But because he's the youngest of the knights, he asks to uh, participate in this uh, Christmas game that serves as the framing device for this film uh, because he wants the, the honor of doing so. Um, he, he is very much uh, known and beloved for the uh, chivalry that he shows. Um, and throughout his uh, many adventures, most of which, until we get to the castle, are not really delved into in a ton of detail. It's more of a passing, like, oh, I encountered this problem, and oh, this other thing happened. But the the morality story is really all tied together with that castle that he runs into, the lord and the lady of the house, um, and the deal that he makes, the, the bargain of, I'm going to, you know, the lord goes out hunting every day, and he's going to give... Gowan whatever he catches, uh, as long as Gowan gives him whatever he gains on the day, which Gowan is happy to accept. Um, what that turns into is, uh, as in this film, uh, the lady of the house uh, trying to seduce him. But Gowan is a very noble and honor, uh, honor uh, a very uh, loyal and honor-filled knight. Uh, and he completely... Uh, rejects uh, all of these advances. 
Uh, he does give, I think he gives a, a one kiss the first day, two kisses the second, and three the third day. And in all three cases, he gives the Lord those kisses willingly. Um, he does not hesitate to provide this to him because a deal is a deal. Um, the only thing that he hides is a sash of green and gold silk uh, that the lady gives him, saying that it will prevent him from being harmed physically. That part, very much in the story. Um, it's not at all handled the way that it's handled in this, where it's this weird <laughs> sexual thing. And I think it's indicating semen on the thing when he grabs it. Oh, like, it whatever. absolutely is indicating semen when he grabs it. So fucking crazy. Um, and like having Gowan completely give in, but not, that doesn't happen in this. This is just Gowan knowing that he's participating in this Christmas game, wants to hold on to the session. It's the one thing that he doesn't give the Lord. So he goes to the Green Chapel, and at first he flinches just a little bit, and the Green Knight kind of gives him shit for it. Second swing, Gowan does not flinch, but the Green Knight holds back, and Gowan's like, hey, asshole, deliver the blow already. I'm ready. Do the thing. And then the Knight does, only leaving a very slight wound on Gowan's neck, because it turns out the Green Knight is the lord of the house. He got transformed by the evil sorceress Morgan Le Fay uh, and is meant to test the knights. Um, the nick from the third stroke is because he tried to conceal the sash. Had he owned up to it, uh, he wouldn't have gotten nicked at all. Uh, Gowan feels ashamed of this, by the way. Really torn up that he was not uh, as noble as he could have been in, in giving over what the Lord said, uh, what, you know, deal, going the full length of the deal and providing the sash, um, to which the Green Knight's like, nah, you're being too hard on yourself. Uh, and Gowan's like, no, 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 I'm going to wear this sash for the rest of my life uh, to remind myself of my failure to keep a promise. And the Knights of the Round Table all come together and decide that uh, they will each wear a green sash as well as a re reminder of Gowan's battle and a, uh, a reminder to be honest. Uh, it is a coming together story of a guy doing his best, uh, allowing his fear of death to lead him to a single, very reasonable blind spot. And for the sake of chivalry, uh, reminding himself for the rest of his days that he's better than that. And if that doesn't sound anything like the film we watched, Walter, it's because it fucking isn't. Because this is not a Gowan with any amount of honor or duty or love for these other nuts. It's not a Gowan that has any desire for honor beyond the way that honor moves you up in society and who is absolutely willing to throw literally everything else to the wind to the point where I spent the film wondering why in the world he kept going anyway, right? Like, why didn't he just say that he was going to go hide away in a shack for a little bit and lie about it? Who was going to stop him? Why does he care about actually going through on this when he's such a duplicitous asshole throughout the rest of the film? It's surreal that they tried to maintain so much of the original framework without understanding why the original framework exists or how it works or the story and moral that it's trying to tell. Because in this film, it's all, he's just an asshole. He's just a self-centered asshole who doesn't want to put in the work, who isn't willing to do the things that it takes to be noble. And I guess at the end of the film, he's killed for it. 
Like, that's, I guess, the implication there. Because he recognizes that if he were to run away and go back, he would also be an asshole that everyone hated. And it's like, wow, you do not care for these characters that you're telling the story of. You don't care for the moral or the tone or the just basic fundamental reasons why that story has stood the test of time. You just thought this Green Knight idea seemed pretty cool. And you figured that it would be fun to have a character who's more morally gray and a more cynical take on how these knights would actually be. And God, I just, I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate the changes that they made. <laughs> so here's the thing. So me not knowing anything about the original original source material and you having now educated you know, myself and the lovely listeners at home, you are 100% correct. That source material is only here in name, as in they 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 use Gawain's name and they use the the Green Knight, but like they don't call King Arthur King Arthur. They don't refer to Morgan Le Fay as Morgan Le Fay. I had to then go look up and figure out what characters were what characters to like actually understand it. Because you are right, it does not seem to be anything of Arthurian legend. But Chase, I have a larger issue here. Uh huh. I have a very, very big issue, even with the source material itself. Uh-huh. Because if the Knights of the Round Table are the honorable, noble, chivalrous men that we have known legend to, to come and be, and whether there is some murkiness in legend or not, particularly around Lancelot or not, <laughs> if an assailant appeared in their noble hall, and stepped up to their round table, and challenged any man to that game, none of those knights would have beheaded him. I wonder why the story is told that way. Because if these knights are truly that honorable, there is honor in combat, there is honor in duel, and there is no honor in decapitating in killing a defenseless opponent. The, the, the second the game is made, I'm like, all right, Gawain is just going to, like, you know, give him a little nick on his cheek, and then the story is going to be how they're going to all razz him and be like, well, you won't... Oh, I would have given him way worse. Like, blah, blah, blah. And then it would have been to the story of, well, you know what? I'll show them when I go fight him, you know, when I go deal with him next Christmas. I'll, I'll actually duel him. I'll actually prove my worth as a knight. And then instead we get, all right, I'm going to chop off his head. I'm going to spend the entire next year drinking, fucking, and just being a general asswipe. And then I'm going to have to be reminded of my obligation by my uncle and, like, scolded into actually following through on my quest. And then the entire point of, like, he didn't have to fucking go. You're 100% right. He could have sat in a shack in the woods for, like, two weeks and then came back and been like, yeah, dude, like, it was no big deal. His, he, he kept his head. His head came back. My head came back. It was the exact same thing. I'm, I'm like, a huge hero. Like, I understand now with your explanation of the, the original source material, sort of the story that it is trying to tell, the mythos that it's trying to create of, you know, even the most noble and chivalrous of us at the end of the day 
we're only human and we're allowed to make mistakes and it's how we learn and live off of those mistakes that is, is how we grow and how we become honorable people. But I still, I can't get my head around the fact that one of the knights of the round table would just decapitate a defenseless person like that. I, I just, I can't, I can't comprehend that at all. Yeah, I mean, in the original story, which, by the way, he's not like a, a tree person in that original story. He's just a large dude wearing green. Um, but the in the original story, like, he gets down on a knee and, like, exposes the, the neck and makes a whole big thing about it. So Gowan, in that story, at least, you can make the argument of, like, well, the Green Knight's quite literally asking for it in that specific case in a way that is not necessarily the case in the film. Uh, I agree with you that you would think the chivalrous way to uh, go would be to uh, not kill someone who is defenseless, but given that he's both willingly defenseless and asking for him to give the strongest blow that he can, um, the idea of like not killing him would be seen as, as not chivalrous, right? You're, you are holding back. Um, you're not giving me your best when I am asking for your best. There's a weird kind of uh, play on that that maybe to modern sensibilities makes a little bit less sense. But if you think about the nature of a duel, right, and, and how much that kind of served as a, uh, a a chivalrous concept, fighting to the death as a way to restore and maintain honor, I think it makes a little bit more sense. Um in this story, it makes no fucking sense because Gowan isn't an honorable knight. He's not following a code of chivalry. Um, he doesn't care about any of those things other than prestige. And he doesn't even really seem to care about that. I don't know what motivates Gowan throughout this story. It's not the woman that he says that he loves and is very happy to abandon and, and essentially uh, at least emotionally cheat on pretty comfortably. Um, it's not a sense of honor or duty or a love for anyone involved. It doesn't even really seem like it's for the title. I, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, the answer I, I come to is like, well, that's, there wouldn't be a movie if he didn't. Like, it wouldn't be much of a movie if he just chose not to show up and go in a shack. So... I, yeah. That movie true. might have been more interesting. Well, you know what would have been interesting is given a character with a fucking motivation that had a reason to engage in this. Like, I don't know, a sense of chivalry and honor based on a, a range of experiences he previously had and a belief in something. Just a belief in anything, honestly, would have gone a long way here. And instead, it's meant to, like, create this atmosphere and this mood and this unsettling, like, you know, what's going on with this guy and why isn't, you know, can he become a knight or is he uh, kind of destined to uh, mimic it? And you, you get the line of, like, you are no knight when he gives in to the, the lady of the house. But, like, yeah, he never has been. There's been no point in this in which he has been that guy or ever acted like he wants to be that guy. So what? what's the point? What What are we doing? Why are we here? Right, he's, he's, he's reminded by the scavenger, like, I just gave you information. Like, aren't you going to give me anything? And, like, gives them one coin when the 
the woman says that her head is in the spring and he's like, well, what will you give me if I get it? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Who asked that like, question? <laughs> who asked that question? It is, it is very weird. And the motivations of, I would say, pretty much all of the characters are very bizarre and so separate from each other. It seems like almost none of the characters are actually intermingling with each other in any way, shape, or form. They all exist separately of each other. It, it, it's very funny, actually. I, I'm reminded of, while I was on vacation in Boston, we went to the Salem uh, Witch Museum, which, um, the it's basically like three rooms. There's a gift shop, and there's like two exhibit rooms. And the first exhibit room, it's in this old church, and you're in the, the congregation hall, basically. And they've got, you know, gutted this congregation hall, and they tell the story of what happened during the Salem Witch Trials through these dioramas that are up on the wall. And it's, um, it's actually kind of funny that this has popped into my head, because the Green Knight feels like that. It feels like these very separate dioramas showing a, a moment in time. And it just happens to be that there are actors playing it out instead of, uh, uh, you know, it's a small world style, non-animatronic animatronics. But everything does feel very broken apart. And I think that's even further emphasized by the, the title card decision that they use, where they do. They use title cards to sort of break up the chapters as everything goes along in a way that I feel, I understand the thought is that you're trying to tell this story uh, of Sir Gawain. And if you were telling a story, if you're telling this long tale, you probably wouldn't tell it all in one sitting. You would probably, upon your return to, to Camelot, you'd be sitting there and you'd have your, your opening feast. And, I, and you'd be like, well, not today. I'm tired. Let me, you know, drink and be merry. But then the following nights, your, your co-knights, your, your king, the, the chambermaids, your lover, whoever, would be like, well, well, tell us the story. Tell us what happened. And you would talk for a little while, and then you'd you know, trail off after your meeting with the scavengers or your meeting with the, the, the headless woman. And you would go, well, that's enough for tonight. I can't tell you the whole story in one sitting. And I can understand that concept, but it doesn't work because the characters are so unsympathetic, unlikable, are, are paper mache and don't have anything to them other than the story? Yeah, well, and it's so, you know, the thing that's frustrating about it to me, like the vignettes that get added, there are things that like very briefly touched on, if at all, in the uh, original story. And the reason for that is because this is a morality tale. Like there's a clear purpose where everything is connected like the Lord of the house is the green knight. And so the story is about going to the Lord's house and how he engages there and what his actions say about him. Like there's a whole, it's a whole thing, right? It's all connected. I don't know what the morals of each of these vignettes were supposed to be. Like, I guess it's good to get a woman's skull out of a lake and put it back on her body. But like, what does Gowan take away from that? I mean, I could tell you he doesn't take anything away from that because his behavior doesn't change. It doesn't set him forward as a character. Um, 
But I'm not sure what we, the audience, are supposed to take from that, other than that, isn't this a surreal thing that happened? Isn't it weird? Isn't this fantastical, this world that I have created and this atmosphere that it brings? Um, you know, with the thieves, it's like, okay, so the story is that he shouldn't have trusted this guy at all because he was actually a robber? and Or was it that he should have given the robber more money because it's better to give somebody like that like, 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 what, whose side are you on in that one movie? I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's, that side of the story holds up no matter how you look at it. And the f talking fox at the end is wild because <laughs> it seems to imply that the answer is for Gowan to give up on the quest. And again, there's no reason for Gowan to say no to the fox saying this, right? Like, what is the thing that drives him forward and why are we supposed to believe like like you would think that the fox is supposed to be wrong and so him pushing forward so he could do the honorable thing is the right answer but this movie sure doesn't think it is like it ends with off with your head there's no there's no saving him here there's no uh honor in it he never comes to a point of of real acceptance outside of that ending sequence which we will get to that fucking ending sequence um i just it it doesn't know what it wants to do outside of setting this surrealist atmosphere um because it's about a mood it's about the way that things look and the way that things feel and this sense of of not knowing what will happen next and you're always meant to be engaged in the next set piece that is thrown at you and they all move on quickly enough that you're not meant to get hung up on the things that i'm getting hung up on and i'm sure there are people who really like this film who think that i'm nitpicking with some of this stuff or that you know the idea of wanting to to pin it down to some cohesive singular message is something that would be the film would be lesser for like those you know, like, oh, those silly chivalry tales from back in the day are so simplistic as these morality lessons that don't really hold up in the modern day. And there's a lot to be said about the pros and cons of the chivalry code. And I would actually be interested in a film exploring that. This one fucking doesn't. Um, I, I just, it's so frustrating to see. You, you keep falling back to and I understand it's frustrating, mm -hmm. and that is why I, I kind of want to cut you off here for for a moment mm -hmm. because you keep bringing up atmosphere and you keep bringing up the surrealism of it all, and I want to keep that frustration you have bubbling because I do want to get to the end and give you <laughs> your I, and I say this in the politest of terms possible the soapbox <laughs> that I know you desperately need to eviscerate this ending, but. I do want to pause and give, to, to me personally, and I'm, I'm totally willing if, to have this discussion if you disagree, me personally of the story, the plot, if I take away that there was any source material, it's still not a good story. It's a very cobbled together, messy story that, as you, as you said, if it's supposed to be all of these lessons of morality, they don't really say anything. So then what is left? If I strip away all of that, what is left? And in all honesty, it is very, to me, very pretty, very interesting set pieces. 
I think the the filming and the saturation of it and the the cinematography and the artistry of that filming was perhaps the most engaging thing to me. I thought it was really really interesting to look at, mm-hmm. and to me, sort of points to to the uh, the studio A twenty four here to a style. And I I got a lot of everything everywhere all at once from the background and from the scenery and from the angles that were shot and from, again, I say the saturation because for some reason this film really stuck out to me visually in a way like a Quentin Tarantino movie has a very particular visual style beyond, you know, set pieces or anything, but just the, the, the texture of the colors and all of that really stands out. That all really stood out to me and in all honesty, I was much more absorbed by any of that and and tones and the shades and all of that than I was the story itself. Mm-hmm. What what did you think about the actual the, the the cinematography, the sort of mechanics of how this film was designed and and, and ran? Oh yeah, there's a profound amount of craft with this film. Um, Andrew draws Palermo is the cinematographer. Um, he's done a few things with David Lowry, the writer and director of this film in the past. Um, and it's clear the two of them know how to work together and know how to set a mood and know how to get a shot in a certain way. You know, A24, I, I think, has been criticized in the past for having a kind of very artsy style that can sometimes be kind of written off as pretentious. I don't necessarily think that's fair. Like, as much as I have my frustrations with this film, I would not call it pretentious from a cinematography perspective. From a from a writing perspective, a bit. Uh, but from the, uh, you know, there's just this this use of color, this use of uh, of setting to to, you know, just really capture these different elements of the characters and the world that they inhabit. Um, to to really play on your expectations a little bit, I, I think there's a lot here that really does work. You know, it was a film that started off as a second monitor film for me, to be honest with you, but it got my attention. I was... I, the reason I am capable of having such strong feelings about it is because it had enough stylistic flair to it that I wanted to pay attention to what it had to say. Um... And and that's something that's like un, uh, unironically without qualifiers. I I think that there is a lot of talent in terms of the like the visual aspects of this film. Uh, I I think that the way in which certain things are done is very well executed. I don't know that from an editing perspective. I think it all works in like the order that it's presented in. And that's a David Lowry problem, not an Andrew Draws Palermo problem. So I guess what I'm saying is I really like Andrew Draws Palermo. I think he did a wonderful job. David Lowry needed work. His sections needed some work. <laughs> <laughs> Which is entirely hilarious that, that your friend has tried so hard to keep you away from him. He knew. And he in, knew. In, in this instance, he wasn't able able to save you from yourself. <laughs> it was a matter of time. It was a matter of time. But so 
I, I did. I, I wanted to squeeze just just a little little refresher in there, something nice to say about the film, well, because I, I did think it, it looked very interesting. Yeah. I, I, I do think we should throw one more positive in there before we get back to me being mad, um, which is that I thought Dev Patel did a great job as Sir Gowan. Like, like he's not Sir Gowan. That character is not Sir Gowan's character at all. But for the kind of morally gray person that he was trying to portray, as far as capturing the raw emotion that the scene was clearly meant to deliver. Like he sells it, man. He's putting his all into this role. And I I think that there's a lot that can be said about his acting performance. Um, I I think a lot of the other characters feel a little bit more almost like stage play characters. Like there's that sense of like overdoing it a little bit in terms of, of trying to, um, set this more formal maybe maybe poetic tone like maybe that's how they're trying to appeal to the original source material they don't necessarily talk the way that like people talk you know there isn't that there's a little bit of that divide i guess between the more casual aspects of it but dev patel navigates that as brilliantly as i think anyone could have given the role that he was given uh, and I do want to give him before we allow me to to rant again on my soapbox that you're very nice to start pulling out for me. I want to give him a lot of credit because given how much I hate the decisions that were made with that character, it says a lot that I still came away from that performance going, man, Dev Patel's a really good actor. He's really good at this whole acting thing. I would definitely agree that he he stood out among the rest of the cast. Um, I, I think the word you're looking for is almost Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. It does feel very, very stage theater how the rest of the characters are portrayed. Um, and then there is, there's, there's Gowan, there's Dev Patel that, and I, I almost think it is on purpose that his character does feel so separate from the rest of them because it is about his journey. It is about Gowan's journey and Gowan's story and, and everybody else is just a pawn in this this greater story, this greater legend that is being told and, and unfolded in front of us, whether it's a good legend, a good story, or not. Uh, I do think that the the atmosphere, the acting, the everything that they surrounded the story with did make the movie feel like it was about this large journey. That, that Gowan and Dev Patel were going on, whether we felt like they wanted to or not. Uh, and all journeys, Chase, they come to an end. And I am, I'm going to step back here for a moment. I'm not going to interject. I am going to allow you the opportunity for the role of a lifetime. I would like you to put on your best film critic hat and eviscerate the ending of this movie. Because I agree with you, it was fucking atrocious. I I am honestly so frustrated. Like, here's the thing. This film decides, okay, well, he's Gowan is not an honorable dude. He can't do the honorable thing here and accept his death because he's a coward and because he uh, has at every turn of this put himself above everything else around him that's been uh he's been punished for that he's been rewarded for that whatever else happens 
Um, it's it's been the one central thing to his character, and so when he gets on the ground and decides to run away, and he goes back to Camelot, it's like yeah, that sounds about right. And we get into this like montage sequence, and he, you know first he becomes king because Arthur passes away. No idea why Gawain becomes king, by the way. Uh, Constantine. He's his nephew. Not Constantine's the nephew that gets the kingdom, my friend. That's that is not the order of secession that is ever established. It is wild that the king would just hand it over to the guy that he doesn't really know. And we know that he doesn't have any connection to Gowan because the film starts with him saying, I don't know you. And I feel like that's a problem that I should fix. So wild that he just, I guess, spoiler alert, imagines himself being named king. Because I feel like that is putting so many carts before so many horses in terms of how this would really break down. But sure, Gowan becomes king. Um, He's super happy. So he goes and, and has sex with his girlfriend who bears a kid. But then Gowan's like, nah, I'm going to abandon her and be cold as hell about it and just be a complete asshole. And I'm going to marry a noble woman who looks like the woman that he saved, like whose skull he restored. Like it's not quite, but it's similar enough where I think it's meant to blend in together. And I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I guess it's supposed to be like a reminder, like everything that he is again, imagining spoiler alert uh is reflected back in the journey that he just had and so he continues to be a coward of a a father and uh and boyfriend and uh get this noblewoman in charge instead the son comes of age dies in battle unceremoniously uh gowan becomes a hated king that everyone wants to you know, to see dethroned his family abandons him and he finally removes the uh, the green sash so that his head can fall off. And then it was all a dream. God, it's the worst fucking cliche in all of storytelling. I cannot stress enough how lame it is every time. Like, say what you will about that ending. It would have been a bleak ending. But it would have been an ending that fit the character that we had seen. Like, it would have been this, like, man, that's a, a bleak way of looking at this story. But, yes, this is what would happen if the guy who Gowan has been this entire time was put in the same circumstances. Like, that would at least be an interesting, cohesive statement on who this character is. And he imagined—and and then it turns out this was all in his head. And he thought all of this through and decides, you know what— Maybe I'm better off dead after all. I'll remove the sash. And the knight's like, good for you, man. Now I'm going to cut your head off. And that's the end of the film. There's no redemption. There's no none of the moral of like, now that you've let this go and truly accepted your fate, you have proven something that you've grown in some way. Like, it, there's, it, it, it's so surreal on, on so many different levels. One, where did this negative self-image come from? Because Gowan has had no problem being the guy that he has been basically this entire time. The concept of guilt, not really a thing we've seen him struggle with this entire time. So why would he just imagine that he would be such an asshole? Why can't he then say, well, you know what? Imagining this, 
I should run away and just not be such an asshole. Like, I could change my ways, start a new life, go somewhere else. Don't go back to the kingdom. Start a fresh life somewhere else in this this grand old country that he lives in and, and turn a new life because he realizes he's not the guy that he wanted to be. He's not the knight that he's intended to be. And so, you know, he goes on and does his own thing. That would have been fine. But instead, it's this weird little trick in which the sequence that we got that had a chance to be really powerful and and really capture the character that has been built was all a dream didn't matter was completely irrelevant and then he chooses to take off the sash and die anyway like we're supposed to believe that he has the selfless bone in him that would be necessary for this and that he would genuinely believe that his death would make the world better. Ra- I don't know, man. I don't know what this film is trying to say with that ending. I don't know why we still have people in 2021 when this film was released doing the, but that didn't really happen ending. Uh, and not in a like a clever way of like a false narrator, like untrustworthy, just a straight up long sequence of events that are revealed to not at all be true. That are not even that like reasonable in the first place. And the lesson is, oh, I guess I should die. Was, was that the whole was that why you said no to the fox? Was it that the fox was trying to steer you off of some sense of destiny you had that it was your time to die because guess what every other fucking time in this film that you confront death you're trying to find a way out of it so what Ugh, this film does not know what it wants to be from a narrative perspective it's not even really sure what it wants to be from a symbolic perspective it has feelings and it wants you to feel things And it doesn't really care the path that it takes to get to those feelings as long as you hit the feeling that it wants you to have and it does so in a way that looks pretty. And it is a visually compelling film. And Dev Patel is a compelling actor. But wow! Wow, what a pretentious, awful, awful ending. If there's anything in this film that could be described as pretentious, it is that sequence because it is so unearned by the rest of the film. I don't think you can use the word pretentious. And, and, and I'm about to make a joke here. It's not belittling your point. But for, in order for it to be pretentious, it has to then mean something. <laughs> and there is no meaning to it. It's, it is a joke without a punchline is what that ending is. I am 100% on board with you. If it had ended, if the movie had cut to black, Right after his head hits the floor and the, and the you know the the doors finish slamming open or, or or however you know that scene goes, if the movie ends there, I I agree with you. It's well, yeah, that that fucking tracks. Like he's a terrible human being, and like he ran away, and like here are the consequences of his actions. But here's the thing, Gowan never, ever, ever really suffers a consequence from any of his actions. The only time is after his interaction with the scavengers, and then that was just a plot device to take all of his toys away so that they could then reward him later for being chivalrous and being a good person, but 
in reality, you should be a good person because you are a good person and not because you're expecting a reward from it. Is Gawain Jeff Bezos? <laughs> is is he a philanthropist because he gets tax breaks? Like, <sighs> it's messy. It it the story is is it's a nothing burger. There is nothing here. There is a bunch of lines that were written on a page and were handed to these actors and said, speak these lines and speak them in this certain way. And act, I guess. But I don't know if you ask anyone who is a part of this film if they can give you a good reasoning for for the themes. I mean, I'm I'm just taking this off of off of um off of Wikipedia of Lowry stating the possibility of, of Gowan being beheaded at the end is supposed to be a positive thing. He faces his fate bravely and there's honor and integrity in that, but that doesn't mean he's dead. He's killed. He received the blow that he was dealt and all is set within the universe of the film. But it's not because then what was the entire point? He didn't act bravely. He, cow- he he was a coward at the very end because he saw this alternate universe and said, eh, I don't want to deal with that shit. Kill me instead. That's not bravery. That's that is cowardice. And I'm I'm very, very touchy about using it in that way because I don't want to then hearken any type of connection to suicide being cowardice because that's essentially what he's doing but instead of facing the consequences of his actions if he does run away which is literally what the film has been telling us this entire time as you stated every time he interacts with death he's trying to figure a way out of it and he just doesn't want to deal with that hassle and doesn't want to deal with all of that bullshit because it actually makes him look like a terrible person like, because you're a fucking terrible person. That's your, your, your self-conscious. That's your inside voice telling you, yeah, you're a pretty shitty human being. Yeah. And it's, the, it's bad. The, there's never a moment at which the idea of being better even crosses his mind. And, you know, I, I look at some of these critic reviews and, and them talking about, you know, oh, it's an avant-garde flair, an ambiguous morality. It's not ambiguous. It's very clear what this guy's morality is. It's, I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to do the thing that gets me the power that I want. That's the, it's not ambiguous. It's not some mysterious force. The The idea of like, oh, well, it's about someone waiting for external forces to turn him into the gallant, heroic behavior that he believes he should be, and no matter how far you travel... You'll never be able to leave yourself behind. You know, I actually, that was uh, Alan, uh, Alison Wilmore's review for The Vulture. I would agree with that, except it doesn't pull the trigger on it because it decides at the end to give him the hero's ending anyway by having that whole sequence be a dream. And also, does it, is any of it in the context of the story as we got it actually meant to be gallant and heroic? Like, even if he goes through with it, given the character that we met, would there have been any honor in that? Would that have, would him going out into the forest and taking a blow from the Green Knight have changed anything about him? No. 
Absolutely not. And and you can say like, oh, well, that's the point. The idea is that he can't change who he is. And because he's not willing to put in the work to change who he is, then he is stuck being the kind of guy who can never succeed in that part. It's so, it's so cynical and, in my opinion, just tired. It's overdone. We've got so many films who are perfectly willing to explore this darker side of masculinity, these you know, mediocre men who believe that they are destined for something greater but fall short of it because they can't get out of their own fucking way. There are so many films out there telling that story. There are so many TV shows out there telling that story. There is nothing avant-garde about this film. It looks great, and there's some good performances in here and some vignettes that removed from the context of the film could hit some emotional points that I could see people resonating with. But it is not nearly as clever as it thinks it is, and it's not some sort of innovative mix of these different aspects. It is the story of a guy that thinks that he's cool and he's not. And instead of taking steps to get better... He gives up. Okay, fine. You can't make me care about that guy, though. You can't make me care about that story. And you could have, I guess, if you'd just stuck the landing, but you weren't willing to do that. You needed, for whatever reason, to have his life come to an end on his own terms. Like, he deserved that somehow. Like him recognizing that about himself is meant to be the noble act that finally makes him a knight. And that is entirely unearned. Ah, God, this movie. This movie, man. I can uh, retcon the consequences of my actions, too. It's called safe scumming in video games, and I do it quite often when I play certain games like Fire Emblem because I don't want to suffer the consequences of placing a character in the wrong spot and missing on a 99. With that being said, Chase, mm. that joke was only for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. At the end of the day, how do you rate the Green Knight? Five out of ten. I can't... Like, it gets three stars for its cinematography, one and a half stars for uh, Patel's really good performance, and half a star because there were some scenes that removed from the context of the story that I love, I do think work. Uh, any amount of other praise I could give it, it takes away through its own hubris and desire to be seen as something that it's not much like the main character of this film itself the green knight believes that it is telling some grand story in some innovative way with this just look look at how clever our subversion of the arthurian legend is and it's not clever and it's not different and it's not even that interesting once it gets broken down into its core parts. And the most interesting thing about it, it undoes at the last minute for a cut-to-black ending that is at odds with everything we've seen to that point. I, It's a shame, because there's so much about this film that could have worked if it was willing to be 
more honest, actually, you know, more than anything, just either honest to the story that they told and how the character would reasonably come to his end or more honest in terms of the character that they made such that the trials that were overcome would match the ending that was given. You would have to take away that terrible montage sequence, but you should probably have done that anyway because it sucked. Um, yeah, five out of ten. That's what I can give it. And I, I feel like I'm being generous with that, given how much I dislike the film. But objectively, there are things I have to give it credit for. I think that's entirely fair. And, and I'm, I can't even come up with like a jokey, like, I, I guess five nights of the round table out of what are there, 13, 12? I, I, <laughs> I don't really care because let's be honest, the movie didn't care about Arthurian legend either. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, it's visually, I think it's a very, very interesting movie to watch from that sort of perspective. Uh, it's a pretty bad story. Dev Patel is, you know, fine. I, I I understand that he's sort of hampered by what he's also given, but at the end of the day, like, okay, yep, he, he did a decent job for me um, and kind of came across like an arrogant D-bag that I wasn't, I didn't really care what happened to at the end of it. Um, speaking of endings... We are at the end of this podcast. Uh, some may say, thank God, because I know there's some of you at home that did enjoy this film and probably did not like the hit piece that we just <laughs> put on with it. Or some of you are happy that we're finally done talking about this movie. You are annoyed that we even spent our time talking about it. And you know what? I wish I could tell you there were better things on the horizon, but I have no idea what the next movie we're covering is. Chase and I have not discussed that uh, far out uh, enough ahead. And, uh, you know, we have some other films from last year that I know that we uh, we have not covered yet. Um, I do know uh, a certain uh, uh, strange movie just hit Disney Plus here not too long ago, but I doubt I'll be able to convince Chase to give that a whirl. So we'll have a discussion uh, off screen to figure out what we want to talk about. But in the meantime, you guys can head on over to the Rough's Drafts feed, catch up on older episodes of the Final Cut podcast, or go ahead and listen to Steam Cleaners, the gaming podcast that we do on opposite weeks from Final Cut. Or you can separate them out, listen to each of their individual feeds if you only like the movies or you only like the gaming. But if you like Chase... Chase, where can the good folks at home find you on the internet? If you want to yell at me for my uh, dislike of this film, you can find me at Chase Wassner on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Uh, I think we need to pick a fun one for this next one, Walter. I, I think, assuming that I can find it, and I, I realize I'm painting myself into a corner here, maybe it's time for some Spider-Man? Is it time for some Spider-Man? Because I know we're overdue on that one. And I think maybe that's the silliness that I'm looking for. Oh, no one tell him. No, oh, no, no one tell him. Oh, yes. Okay, we're going to do Spider-Man next. Perfect. <laughs> we did it here live, folks. Uh, as always, you guys can follow me at Sadies underscore LOL. Please do not take your Arthurian legend, uh, legend criticisms and point them at me. I do not have an English degree like Chase. Uh, until next time, until we discuss Spider-Man, goodbye, internet. <laughs>